Greetings, fellow Trowelers. Welcome to the NUIG Archaeology Society podcast, Half Trowel Will Travel. We are joined tonight by Professor Eileen Murphy of Queen's University, Belfast, who led the bonier components of the Ranala Osteoarchaeology Project just outside of Roscommon Town. Prepare to join our fearless auditor in attempting to understand what ancient DNA, burial rituals, and landscapes of memory tell us about this site, as well as getting your heartstrings pulled a bit. So sit back and enjoy the journey. Hello and welcome everyone. I am here with Eileen Murphy today, who's going to talk to us about some osteoarchaeology. We were supposed to have her visit us in person last semester, but you know, COVID had other plans. So instead, we get to have her here with us today to chat with us virtually. So uh, I'll turn it over to you, Eileen, if you want to start off by maybe telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, um, hi, everybody. And thank you very much to Bridget for inviting me. We're, we're living in a very strange time, but I think the show has to go on. So I'm really glad to have this opportunity to talk to you in a virtual environment. Um, so who am I? I am Eileen Murphy and I'm Professor of Archaeology in uh, the Department of Archaeology and Paleoecology in Queen's University, Belfast, and I'm a bioarchaeologist. Um, I also am a co-director of our Centre for Community Archaeology and a lot of my work involves public engagement and I think it's really important that as archaeologists we all make a lot of efforts to communicate our findings to the general public and bioarchaeology is no exception to that. Yeah, well, that, that's all that's all great. And it's some um, some interesting fields that you're working in, like bioarchaeology and osteoarchaeology. Um, you know, it's not something that we usually have covered in our regular lectures because it's a very specialized um, branch of archaeology. Um, what exactly is osteoarchaeology and bioarchaeology and kind of what's the difference between the two? Well, I... I would see bioarchaeology as a more all-encompassing term. So, um, you know, osteoarchaeology is very much about the bones. So osteo means bones. Um, But bioarchaeology, you know, it can bring in things like um, animal bones, stable isotopes, ancient DNA, sediment analysis, you know, palynology, tree rings, you know, so anything, I suppose, from the natural world. and, you know, as, as archaeological techniques are just advancing all the time, you know, and, and the DNA developments, for example, are, are you know, they're, they're really producing amazing results. So, so I think, you know, archaeology is all about past people and how they lived and the cultures and societies in which they lived. So bioarchaeological techniques are really important tools that we can use to really engage with the people of the past. Yeah, I think that's kind of one thing that I have found absolutely fascinating, especially in this past year, uh, we've been going a little bit more into some of the some of the finer techniques that archaeologists use to try to get some more information and understand what's going on. And it's just it's just so fascinating to me that we can we now have the technology where we can take like a tiny little bit of bone and we can get so much information from it, whether it's you know, isotopes or ADNA or, you know, what have you. It's just, it's so, so cool. And I know it's just, it's constantly um, expanding. Like there's more and more being discovered or being implemented every every day even. And it's, it's neat just to kind of see see this stuff come across the news and just kind of look at it and go, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's it's neat. It's like, you know, new things are coming up all the time. 
absolutely. No, I, th I think it's a really, it's a really exciting field, you know, and, and as you say, I mean, the samples that we use now in, in a lot of these techniques, you know, because a lot of them are destructive, but the samples we can use are, you know, a few milligrams. So they're, they're tiny, um, but the, the results, you know, are worth, worth the, the destruction, if you like, um, because, you know, there are, are obviously ethical concerns when you're dealing with um, human remains. But, um, you know, we've got lots of different protocols and standards that we would use, you know, as bioarchaeologists, osteoarchaeologists, um, you know, and we, we would only do the sort of destructive analysis if, if we're pretty, if we're confident it's going to produce, you know, um, valuable results. But like I say, we're talking tiny, tiny little chips of bones for a lot of these analyses. Um, and I think it's worth it because I think there's no point in keeping collections of human remains if we don't sort of want to forge ahead and learn more about these people. Yeah, that that's fair. And I, I you know, I do remember learning about how, especially like when the technologies kind of first emerged, um, you had to use much larger samples, but over mm -hmm. time, you know, the sample sizes got smaller and smaller, which is great because then it means more is preserved for future when technology can get even better. Um, I also just, you know, I was actually had a similar conversation with my family the other day because they were kind of asking me about, you know, when does excavation happen and, you know, why would people choose not to excavate? Um, and just kind of going off what we've learned in our classes is, you know, because things like excavation or some of these uh, techniques are inherently destructive because it just, it kind of, you know, in, in the process of trying to discover things, you do end up destroying a little bit. And there's always that question of, okay, are we go is, are the pros going to outweigh the cons in this instance? Um, yeah. But I think, like you said, definitely it's, um, we have all this, this wealth of material. It's important to be able to try to use it to answer questions, to find out more, especially since archaeology is all about learning about the past and learning about the past people. Well, I, I, I totally agree. And and I mean, with excavations, people, you know, they generally, especially in research environments, would tend to not excavate the whole site so that some of it is, you know, preserved for future generations. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the, the sort of the human remains samples and populations would come from development schemes, you know, so for example, um, a lot of the Transport Infrastructure Ireland, um, you know, their large road schemes are, are, are the ones that have produced, you know, the large samples of um, human remains. So there's a lot of thought goes in behind the scenes, you know, as to whether, um, like, whenever they realise there's a cemetery, because it's not always apparent, you know, from the records, they have to then decide, you know, is it valid to continue or could there be an alternative route? Um, and quite often there isn't an alternative route. So I suppose in a way it's the, the good of the, the modern people living in the area, you know, that outweighs the, the, the sort of the leaving the, the dead to rest in peace. But, but I, I'm confident that as, as osteoarchaeologists, you know, we do treat the remains with, with the utmost respect. And, you know, north and south of the border, there are measures in place that, you know, protect these skeletons and make sure that they're, you know, analyzed properly and then curated and stored in a, a safe environment. Uh, well, that's, I mean, that's kind of the most that we can do. And kind of on that topic then, so you've been uh, part of the, I'm going to see if I can get this right, the Renalai Osteoarchaeological Project. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I know that's kind of involved where uh, you've discovered like this whole whole cemetery site with a lot of human remains that was previously completely unknown. Yes, yeah, so, oh, sorry, <laughs> my, my computer keeps 
singing. I don't know how to turn that off. <laughs> oh well. Okay, so um, yes, so so the ran it's the Ranala 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 Ranala. Um, okay, there we go. There we go. Yeah. So so Ranala. This was this was um, a transport infrastructure Ireland um, funded excavation. So it was undertaken in conjunction with Roscommon County Council, and it was a major road scheme. So there was a dangerous bend, you know, on the outskirts of the town of Roscommon. So they wanted to um, do something about that. So this is when the excavation was commissioned. Um, so it took place between I think it was 2015 and 16. So it was like a year of excavation, and this was undertaken by IAC Limited, and the site director was Shane Delaney. So that was the whole excavation process. Um, we then won, won the contract to basically undertake the osteoarchaeological analysis, you know, so the post-excavation analysis of all the skeletons that were discovered. Um, and that's what we refer to then as the Ranala Osteoarchaeological Project. So that's, that's been going on in Queens um, since 2018. Um, so th these projects are always big team effort and they always take you know, quite a lot of time. So whenever they were excavating at Ranala, they found what seems to be a settlement cemetery. Yeah. So there's lots of evidence, you know, of sort of living people and, and sort of industrial processes and lots of animal bones and evidence of metalworking, glassworking, all that sort of thing. Um, and they also then found an area which was full of burials. So there were almost um, 600 individuals buried on the site. Wow. A substantial population. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, and in terms of the features, um, there were a, a series of sort of concentric um, bank and ditch systems, and then the burials were sort of located towards the innermost um, kind of enclosures, if you like. So we think it might have been um, what's called the furta of a tooth, so like the central sort of um, burial ground, you know, of the local kind of um, population group. Okay. So, um, yeah. That's, uh, that's interesting. So um, would that have been possibly used by people kind of just in the surrounding areas, even maybe possibly living out in like dispersed farmsteads or was it kind of just restricted to a certain, certain population? Well, um, I think that's exactly it. It would have been the people living in the rafts um, in the surrounding area. So our, our radiocarbon dates um, show that the site was used over a very long period of time. So our earliest dates are back in the, I think it's, the fourth fifth century oh, AD. Wow. Um, fourth century, yeah, fourth fourth fifth century AD. But it goes all the way up to the seventeenth century. Um, but we seem to have like the main phase of burial would be between kind of the sixth and the, the sort of fourteenth century. But um, so it was used over a very very long period of time, and this is quite often the case with these um, medieval cemeteries that are excavated. You know, they they start off back in the early medieval period and go all the way up to, you know, early modern, post-medieval sort of times. Wow, I was just, I, I pulled out my calculator just to do a bit of math. I mean, that's like a good 900 years, yeah. if I did that correctly, of, you know, of burial use there. That is an, yeah. an extensive amount of time. Um, I don't know. So, you know, sometimes, uh, especially from an American perspective, where a yeah. hundred years is a long time to us, but you know, even even still, nine hundred years at least is it's quite a lot of burial happening. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. Um, so I suppose that's always something to to remember. You know, this is a, a long period of time. Now, the Ranala Osteoarchaeological Project um, 
it was it was really well resourced so it meant that we were able to get i think it ended up being 100 nearly 170 of the individuals radiocarbon dated so that was why oh, wow. so, you know between um the gis work that iac are doing and then the radiocarbon work that we've done in, in the chrono center in queens you know we should be able to build up a picture of you know the burial burial activity over time so that's 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 pretty pretty exciting you know I, I have hopes that we'll be able to kind of you know I, I gave you quite broad sort of a broad chronology but I'm kind of hopeful that we'll be able to delve into this um a little bit deeper if you like yeah um yeah so we can definitely go a little bit more into that but so for the for this project because there was a road roadworks going in to this mm -hmm. area correct um has that road work been completed or are you still working on trying to pull up ever you know excavate and pull up any everything from that site so the you know the excavations would have finished in 2016 and i okay. think i think the road is finished now um but it's a greenfield site like you wouldn't have known there was anything there um before the archaeologists um started working so we have this skeletal population in queens and and you know the Ranala Osteoarchaeological Project. We were sort of directed by Martin Jones, who was the, the TII project officer. Um, so he sort of overseen the post excavation, and I was the lead osteoarchaeologist then in Queens. So it was it was fantastic. So as well as all the radiocarbon dates, we had other specialists involved. We had the the osteology team. Um, we also had. Uh, ADNA work undertaken in Trinity College by Lara, Brad Lara Cassidy and Dan Bradley. We had um, stable isotope work, so that was undertaken um, by Julia Beaumont in Bradford and Janet Montgomery in Durham. So we had a really, you know, really a really sort of ex exciting group of experts came together all to try to to learn more about the amazing people buried at Ranala. Yeah, that's quite a. Um an extensive project. There's a lot of people, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, a lot of stuff going into this. Really, that's yeah. that's always fantastic to hear about. You know, projects like this being f funded enough to be able to bring in all these different people and ideas, mm -hmm. and to get this much information from it. Um, so, were you able to um, like? Did you bring out all of the skeletons? Like I know you said there's like 600 individuals and that is a lot. Um, did all 600 get, um, what's the term for it? I, unearthed is not quite it. Presumed, uh, I suppose. Yeah, I, I guess so, something along yeah. those lines. Um, or did it just, it, did it kind of stay, did you leave some stuff there and the road just went over it or kind of what happened to uh, the, the remains? Okay, so th this would have been, um, IAC, so the, the company that excavated the burial ground, so they would have excavated all the skeletons and, and then we, we came in after that. So, okay. so that's when the skeletons were excavated, they were packed and then they were brought, they were brought up to Queens and we, we did the, the processing of the burials, if you like, from washing all the way through to sort of repackaging and boxing and you know, making sure they were created properly and then the analysis. Um, now, in terms of the site itself, so it was it was like a wedge shape was excavated. So there's, you know, they had done geophysical um, tests across the landscape, and they could see, you know, that the, the you know, there were, there's quite a substantial amount of the site is still preserved in situ. So, okay. it, you know, it's it's what we were talking about. You know, there's always a desire to leave as much as possible in the ground, and only sort of take what's necessary in terms of what's going to be destroyed by the development. Yeah. Okay. Well, that you know, that's always. Um, good to hear you know I'm just kind of um 
you know, I'm interested in the whole process that goes into like when a when construction goes in and there's archaeology that has to either be rescued or they have to try to go around it. Um, so did they have any idea of what they were going to find or do like do the archaeologists just get brought in before any construction takes place to take a look and say yes there's archaeology here or no there isn't? Um, well I think in, in the case of Ramallah and I, I may not be entirely accurate about this but my understanding is that it was a greenfield site and nobody really was aware that there was a cemetery especially a cemetery of such kind of magnitude yeah um so which it kind of seems surprising to us you know you couldn't imagine you know 600 people's remains being just forgotten about but but you know this seems to be something that does happen across the island um i was involved in another um, major project at um it involved burial ground at ballyhanna in county donegal so it's ju just on the outskirts of ballyshannon and that was another big cemetery that came out of the blue, you know, and, and this time the area wasn't maybe as extensive, but it was about 1300 individuals. So, wow. you know, incredibly, incredibly sized population. But um, people had forgotten about it in the local area. And um, what we think happened in that situation was that it was basically due to land changing ownership. Um, and we think that then there's a big house called Rockville House, um, which would have been sort of built sort of in the 1820s, 1830s. And we think that that was part of the process, you know, as the land changed ownership, that the, the estate would have been enclosed and people wouldn't have been able to bury their dead at Ballyhanna anymore. Ah. Um, and at Ballyhanna, there would have been like a little church, but we think maybe some of the church, the church stone was incorporated then into, you know, the walls of the estate. And as it, ha as it happens. <laughs> yeah, so... And, you know, in Common, I mean, um, the famine was particularly bad. So again, that's another period, you know, of hardship and mm -hmm. mass emigration and mass death. So maybe the site kind of started, was forgotten, you know, during, during that kind of catastrophic period. So, so it happens, you know, and, and it, it, it seems to be, it, it's not a rare phenomenon, if you, if you know what I mean, yeah. in Ireland. Yeah, which is just, you know, when I first kind of think about it, it just kind of blows my mind, like, how could we lose track of something? Because, you know, even like for at Redala, you know, if you think that there's 600 individuals buried, the mm -hmm. associated settlement could have had many, many more people, you mm -hmm. know, and so it's like, what happened to them? Where did they go? But then, you, you know, you start thinking about land changing ownership or famines and immigration. I mean, that's how my ancestors ended up in the States. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah same story from quite a few Americans. Um, yeah. And then it kind of makes sense, you know, I mean, if all the people in that little area either die or leave, then there's no one around to remember what mm -hmm. happened there. And then Mother Nature takes over and a couple hundred years later, we come by and suddenly there's a cemetery here that mm -hmm. nobody knew about. <laughs> yeah, it's an, it's an interesting, um, an interesting process and kind of just Again, just something, it, it's kind of the fun of archaeology is just discovering these things and kind of uh, finding these, you know, the stories of these people who otherwise would have been entirely forgotten and mm -hmm. only that now we're able to take a look and kind of bring them back, you know, into the light of day and be like, you know, there were people here, you know, yeah. it's their stories. So it's just, it, it's really neat. Yeah, no, I, I guess, I mean, that, that's, I suppose, one of the reasons why I, I became, you know, an osteoarchaeologist was because it, it was the human stories I was interested in. And, 
you know, the history books are full of the stories of the great and the good, but archaeology, you know, we're looking at the remains, you know, whenever we dig these types of cemeteries, we're looking at the remains of ordinary people, you know, and the ordinary farmers or, you know, the men, women, kids, everybody's there. And um, I just find that really rewarding. You know, like sometimes yeah. it can be really hard because you find the remains of people who've had terrible diseases that would have made their lives miserable or um, you find people who've died violently, you know, and, and yeah. women who died in childbirth. So it, it can be, you know, it can be very, very sorrowful. But at the same time, you know, I think it's a great honour to be able to tell these stories and make sure these people aren't forgotten, you know, as they were. Yeah. For a period of history, we've kind of, you know, we, we're trying to sort of bring, bring their, their stories back and making sure their voices are heard. Yeah, you know, that's another thing that I really like about archaeology is, you know, kind of like what you said, you know, his, in the history books, you read about all the, you know, the really important people, the powerful, um, mm -hmm. you know, the people who could write themselves into history, but, you know, it takes a little bit more to try to uncover just the normal people, you mm -hmm. know, the people who, like, you know, would have been you and me back in the day, you know, I wouldn't have been a... a queen or anything like that I just would have been you know farmer's daughter or something and so it's it's neat to be able to go in and kind of find these stories and just it makes it so much more personal so much more real when you can you know uncover this and yeah. it's just it's it's great although I can only imagine you know sometimes it must be hard to like you said um they didn't always live very good lives <laughs> is no, no. a lot of times very hard or they just they you know didn't always die peacefully in bed at 80 years or something no, definitely not yeah <laughs> yeah so um kind of just going to, if we can look a little bit more closely at some of the the remains that you've been working on through this project um i know it's been they cover quite a range of years um but what's my question here i kind of lost my train of thought because i was just started thinking about you know <laughs> the women dying in childbirth and just oh. <laughs> just ask me what we find in terms of yeah sure so um was there oh there's a question um was there any kind of um now i've I can talk, I swear. <laughs> I only have one language and I can't even get it half the time. But I mean, did you find a majority of men or women or children in the cemetery? Was it kind of evenly distributed more or less? Well, it actually was quite unusual in that, well, I'm saying unusual. It would be, we would think it unusual for our, our modern world, but actually in the past it mightn't have been terribly unusual, but about two thirds of the remains were from under 18s. So they okay. were, you know, people who died, you know, as what we refer to as, you know, immature or children, even though, you know, again, we, we know from the context that probably once you hit about 14, you were probably an adult. You know yeah. What I mean? but, but so most, most of the people were very young. Um, there was a predominance of women amongst the adults, and that was quite unusual because it should be kind of 50-50, but we definitely, we had more, more adult women than men. And um, it, it just seems to be that, men sort of stopped using the cemetery maybe around the 11th century whereas women and children were continuing to use it you know well into the sort of the 14th century and there might even be you know a little clean phase right at the very end of the cemetery's life where the 
the unbaptized babies were, were being buried. So I think we still have to kind of tease that story out, but um, I think there were going to be, we're going to find there were different groups using it at different times and, and whether it feeds into, you know, other church establishments in the area, you know, being established in the men kind of choosing to be buried there and the women and their children choosing to be buried at Ranala. You know, we, we still have to, to find that. Yeah. And it's, it's always, you know, it's one thing that I've, um, I always like to kind of look at, especially when we're talking about uh, cemeteries or burial areas it's just kind of that proportion because it can usually it can kind of tell us a little bit about what was going on um mm -hmm. in in the society and who got to be buried where and all of that but it's interesting that uh you had a preponderance of of women and kind of those the younger people um did they kind of die more because of disease or was it violence or like kind of was there any kind of major cause of death that seemed to get most of them? Well, um, I mean, a lot of the, the children were dying sort of as what we would call infants, but mm -hmm. they were not, not little newborns, but between the age of one month and one year. Um, and what actually seems to have been happening was that they seem to have been susceptible to um, metabolic diseases or vitamin deficiencies. Hmm. A lot of these, this bad age group seem to have lesions characteristic of um, vitamin D deficiency um, and vitamin C deficiency. So the vitamin C deficiency is probably suggestive, you know, that, that their mothers were malnourished. Um, the vitamin D deficiency might be related to the environmental conditions. Um, and this is, this is an extremely interesting area of this population. Um, because we know from the kind of the annals that we did get climatic downturns, you know, and if there was a volcanic eruption somewhere in the world, it might have caused, you know, darkness elsewhere. So yeah. um, we've actually got a spin-off project student in um, Australia National University is going to be looking in greater depth at the whole, um, whole evidence for scurvy and rickets and trying to use, you know, more sort of um, biomolecular techniques to try to really tease out what's going on with those lesions. But um, I, th I thought that was that I found that really harrowing that I had so many babies in that category about a third of a third of the, the children you know with evidence of scurvy and rickets um there was a couple of little sets of twins which is another really I find that very harrowing yeah um because they're usually buried together and, and I think in one Aww. case it did look like they were lying side by side and holding hands which you know which just tugs at your heartstrings <laughs> that does oh my gosh you know what I think that is so important because we're not just looking at them as objects, as skeletons, you know, we're able to sort of get into the mindset of the people who buried these children, you know, and imagine the sorrow of the families. Yeah. So, um, so a couple of little sets of newborn twins and, uh, you know, even today having a twin delivery can be challenging because, you know, once one twin's born, the other one can move around and get into an awkward position. So yeah. that's why quite often modern, modern twin births are through cesarean, which they wouldn't really have had, you know, yeah. at, that, at that time. Um, and then there were two women who died um, possibly during childbirth. You know, their babies were, were full term. Um, so that I just, as a mother myself, I always find that very, very hard, you know. Um, and one of, in one of the cases we actually had um, the mother and the baby, we, we had Lara looked at their DNA and this was really fascinating because she was able to show that it was a little baby boy 
which again, oh, you know, sorry, Aline, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna have demands. you pause for a second. Um, we might want to try turning off our video because you cu cut off a little bit there. Oh, it started, okay. sound, started sounding very robotic. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, I'll turn off the video. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, well, sorry, you were you were saying something about um, Laura had looked into the, the DNA. Yeah. Yeah. So so Lara Cassidy and Trinity, she looked at the DNA of one of the, the mums with her unborn babies. And um, it was really fascinating because um, she was able to tell that the, the baby was a little boy. Um, because osteologically, we can't tell, you know, we can't tell whether a child, you know, prepubescent child is a boy or a girl. Um, so that immediately kind of gives you an, an added layer of sort of um, the individuality, if you like, of the person. So it's a little boy. And another thing that was really interesting was the mother didn't have any genetic relationships to other people in the, in the burial ground, whereas the baby boy had three or four um, connections to other people. So it looked like the mum had come to Ranala from, out, from outside the community, whereas the, the child's father was somebody in the community. So some really interesting things about, you know, marriage and women coming into a new community going yeah. on there that we can tease out through the ADA. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. Um, and it just, again, it just makes them seem more like real people. Cause it's one thing to kind of look at a skeleton or some remains and, you know, you can, you can be a bit detached from it cause it's just, it's kind of, it's just a skeleton sitting in a box, but it's something else entirely to be able to find out that, you know, it was a mother who died in childbirth and, you know, she had a son she was buried with mm -hmm. and, you know, the son was genetically related to, some, you know, some people in the village or, um, you know, the, the two the two twins buried together holding hands. That's just going to uh, pull on my heartstrings for the rest of the day. <laughs> but, I know, I know. Oh, gosh, but it's just, it's so neat to be able to find out those stories because those are the kinds of stories that, you won't really find in the historical record unless like maybe you found some someone's personal journal um but especially like for you know some more of the i don't know what you say um like the illiterate you know the illiterate classes of people aren't going to be keeping personal journals and so this is going to be the only way that their story gets recorded is by looking at their bones or looking at what they've left behind i know absolutely um, at the risk of sort of pulling at your heartstrings even more, I, I can tell you a little bit more. We had a, um, there was another couple of what we call double burials on the excavation, and again, you know, we gave these special attention in terms of you know getting stable isotope work done on the people and getting um, their DNA examined because you know it's a it's a really rich story when you when you can apply all these techniques to an unusual burial. Because um, obviously these people were, for the most part, Christians, so they would have been buried, you know, with their head to the west in a sort of an extended position lying on their back, just in a, a grave pit and possibly wrapped in a shroud. But when you find two people buried together, you know that something unusual has happened. Yeah. Because, you know, they died at the same time. So with the little twins, you know, they're little newborns, so we know that it, it's because of the birthing process or... You know, they had some congenital condition that wasn't compatible with life. But when we get older people, we can then sort of try to figure out, you know, who they were and what, what happened. So 
One of the cases involved, um, it was a little boy and a little girl. So the girl was about seven to nine years and the little boy was only about two and a half, three. So they were buried in the ground and it, it, I swear, it looked like the little girl had been buried in a way to protect the little boy. You know, she had her arms wrapped around him. Um, you know, so again, it's very emotive. They weren't just chucked into the burial. They were really carefully laid out. And, and I suppose, I mean, I just kind of like the idea of the girl was, you know, she, she would look at the, the people who buried the pair thought that she could look after, the, you know, the small child in the afterlife. Yeah. But, you know, again, um, we had the DNA work done and this suggested that they were um, maybe third or fourth degree relatives. So they were related, but not like brother or sister or first oh. cousins or anything, uh, which was kind of, you know, was it interesting. And also then um, in terms of their, their sort of place of origin, um, the little boy, his genetics was most similar to modern Irish. So it looks like he, he came from, you know, the, that area. But the, the little girl, she had um, a DNA profile that was more similar to sort of Scottish and Welsh. And Lara came to the conclusion that perhaps she had one Irish and one British parent. So, you know, again, there's all these sort of little bits of detail that help us to personalise. Yeah, um, you know, it kind of, it, it makes me wonder, you know, what, what led them to be buried together because you know it, it's things like that that are definitely you know that was done purposely like I said they aren't just kind of chucked into a hole in the ground and you know sprinkle a little dirt on top um mm -hmm. you know and especially if they're not brother and sister because you know when you're first describing it I was thinking oh it's you know brother and sister maybe you mm -hmm. know they they died at the same time for some reason and you know the older sister's taking care of her little brother but to hear that they're not that closely related at least not like brother and sister or first cousins you know it mm -hmm. makes you wonder the the relationship that they had and it just it just adds a little bit more to their story see I suppose as well you know we've got our own kind of modern view of relatedness if you know what I mean um, yeah so like the early Irish like we know that the, that you know communities would have been very close and they had their sort of fosterage system which you know even if you weren't biologically related everybody would, in a community would have had sort of close ties because of fosterage. So, um, so there could have been some really close relationship between the families that are, we, we can't see, you know, in, in the DNA. Um, and it, it could have been that they both, there was some sort of an accident or some sort of a, um, an illness that killed them quickly. And that's why they just, they thought it was appropriate, you know, to bury them both together. Yeah. You know? So do you want me to tell you about the other double burial? Yes, please. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this one, now this one, it, this time we're dealing with um, two older, older individuals. So we have um, two skeletons. They're sort of lying kind of um, almost face to face, sort of on their sides and slightly leaning forwards. But again, their arms are totally wrapped around one another. Um, one was a sort of a, an adolescent, so sort of between 16 and 18, and then the other was a young adult. Now, what would be your immediate assumption? Uh, maybe a betrothed couple, <laughs> if not possibly married. <laughs> that would be just my first kind of indication. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, what about when I tell you that the, the the DNA and the osteo showed they were both definitely male. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. Yep. 
So I definitely think, I mean, the way, I mean, their arms were like totally entwined. And again, we're looking at a very sort of intimate positioning. And yeah. I would again say that those who buried the pair, it was a, um, you know, it was a caring position, the way they were laid out. So um, I think they were very close in life, these two people. Now, whether they were lovers, we, we can't say. Um, yeah, maybe they were foster brothers because we you know in the in the accounts you know they, they do talk about foster brothers being very close and sharing beds and sharing cups etc yeah um, but i mean the, the whole attitude towards homosexuality was quite different you know in early medieval times yeah really, you know, even if you look at the sort of the penitentials like um obviously the church frowned on any sort of activity where <laughs> people were having fun <laughs> but, um, pretty much yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know the the punishment for you know homosexuality wasn't wasn't huge compared to some of the other punishments that, that were dealt out so um again the dna sort of suggested these these two people were um third fourth degree relatives so again not hugely closely related but um Again, I just think it's a fascinating burial and it has so many questions. Yeah, um, that is. It just kind of, I, again, so my, uh, my undergrad is actually in creative writing. So I'm very much um, in, into kind of thinking up stories. And so hearing about these things, it just, it just makes me wonder about what their story is and what their life was like. And uh, although, you know, I just have to kind of keep in mind that to try not to just kind of impose my own modern view on what it is, um, you know, because again, the context that they're buried in, the the society that they're buried in, is so much more different than mine. But it's just, it's just fascinating to to think about because it's just, it's so unusual, it's so different, and it just makes you wonder what led to that burial happening in that particular way. No, absolutely. You know, we're, we're all, we all kind of have our own sort of modern construct view of the world and we just have to be so careful, you know, because I think even during the excavation, that pair was referred to as Romeo and Juliet because everyone just assumed, <laughs> you know, yep. a female. So, so yeah, so that's, that was one of the burials, that, you know, again, that I found just really intriguing, but also, you know, quite emotive because there is such evidence of care in how the bodies are, are positioned. Yeah. No, that's definitely one, you know, that and the, the two, the two younger ones with the, the girl kind of holding the, the younger boy, there's just, it, it's just such a, a sweet, I, I guess, idea, although, you know, they're unfortunately past, but, you know, just to kind of think that someone position, put them into that position because they felt that the, the deceased would have wanted that that you know that was the best way to do it to um it's just like kind of a last little token of making sure that they're comfortable for going on to the afterlife and it's just it's, just... it's mind-blowing isn't it it is it is and it's just you know tugging all the heartstrings here oh, oh no i know god I'm, I'm pretty pretty bad you know i get quite <laughs> emotional about it but at the same time i think that's a normal reaction yeah you're very cold and callous and and how you view these people you know, that, that's, that's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, well, I think you'll, you know, I, I don't know, at least me personally, I feel as though you might treat them with a little bit more respect if you can connect with them on kind of more an emotional level, because then you'll, you'll see them as, as people rather mm -hmm. than just, you know, sticks of calcium. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. You know, and there's, there's, like, there's other little telltale signs of emotion, you know, because quite often there's an assumption that um, Christian burials don't have grave goods. But when you actually look, you know, at Ballyhanna as well, um, you find, you know, a lot of the people are being buried with pieces of quartz laid around their bodies and sometimes even in their hands. Um, some of the little babies at Ranla had um, a bead put beneath their head. So I think um, some of them were blue, some of them were amber. Um, and, you know, there's a certain positioning of animal bones. I, I think there, there's a lot going on in the, the sort of people are being are given grave goods. They maybe just couldn't afford fancy metalwork. Um, yeah. And then that's only what we're seeing, because I think there have probably been lots of flowers and, you know, sort of like babies maybe having, you know, toy, toys and things made of rushes, you know, things yeah. that are all lost to the archaeological record. Yeah, well, it just, you know, it makes sense that, you know, even even if we're in a Christian setting where, you know, they, the belief is that you're not going to take stuff with you to the afterlife or the church may frown upon you, uh, stuffing your loved ones a coffin full of, you know, riches and jewels, but, you know, it, it, it makes sense that people would still want to put something in there with their loved one, just to, you know, like a favorite toy, or just a little, a special stone that might kind of help protect them, or help ease their way into that, it's just such a very human thing to do, mm -hmm. just to kind of put a little token in with them, so it just, you know, it, it makes sense, even in, a, even in a Christian setting, that there would be some kind of grave goods going on. Yeah, no, I think so. And, and I think as well, like, especially when you're dealing with um, the deaths of children, you know, you, it could be siblings wanting to put something into the grave. Oh, know, definitely. Or, or friends. So, you know, sometimes we tend to think as adults, but, you know, you have to remember that it wasn't just adults that would have been involved in all these, these different rituals that kids would have been there too. Yeah, and especially, you know, when you're talking about, like, losing uh, children or younger siblings, that would have been such a tragic uh, incident that, you know, they would they would want to do something, especially, you know, if they're so young, um, they would want to kind of give them something to, mm. to, to bury with them. It just, you know, it just, it makes sense to me, at least. Yeah, no, no, I think it does. And I think it might also, you know, help them a bit with, with healing too, you know. Yeah. Involved. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, that was one of the things, I suppose, um, you know, like I suppose modern society, children are quite detached from death, whereas I think in a lot of the past societies, they wouldn't have been. And, and I mean, we see this in Victorian society where, you know, you had little girls even having, you know, dolls that would die and be put into little toy coffins or you know all this quite well, stuff that we would consider quite macabre but yeah it was because death was sort of so prevalent and they were quite used to losing siblings that it was a way for them to kind of cope with it and and understand it you know it's, it's very interesting yeah yeah no it is especially since um you know even even though they would have been very familiar with with death and losing family members you know that's not to say that they would have been um jaded against it because you know the loss of a sibling or loss of a family member is still very much a loss and you know it just it it would it would make sense i keep saying that, that would make sense but it really would is that it's part of the whole process of uh saying goodbye to the loved one and being able to heal and you know move on because you know, you still have to 
get on with life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's just, it's, it's so cool just to kind of think about all these different stories that have now been uncovered because of this, you know, of, of the Roadworks project and the, the excavation um, brought these guys back into the light and so that now we can actually take a look at them and um, have their stories be told. Yeah, and that's what, I mean, you know, that, that's what I, I find it very rewarding work, you know, and um, I just, I do think it's important that we are, you know, we continue to be able to study human remains, you know, and obviously we have to be respectful and ethical, but I just think it, it, it brings so much more richness to our studies of the past if we can actually put the human stories, you know, in, in amongst all the artifacts and monuments and landscapes as well. Yeah, definitely, especially when we're talking about a, you know, a set of people who wouldn't have made it to the historical record um you know they would have gone entirely and have gone entirely forgotten and unnoticed because no one wrote down their story but now we get to actually find it again yeah yeah oh gosh it's just it's it's so cool <laughs> i just i really really like it um it's just, it's such a neat facet of archaeology. I think, and I just think these techniques are, are bringing it, you know, they're, they're osteoarchaeology combined with these other techniques just can provide so much riches, you know. So even in terms of the diseases people would have suffered from, you know, I can, as an osteologist, identify, you know, cases of tuberculosis, for example, but, um, Pathogen DNA specialists can tell us what strains of the disease people were suffering oh, wow. from. You know, and I mean, this is something we planned for Ranala and um, my colleague um, Mike Taylor in Surrey. He's he's a, a pathogen DNA specialist, and he's gonna gonna look at the Ranala skeletons um, because then we can work out, you know, you know, the, it sort of feeds into the evolutionary tree of tuberculosis and how it evolved and developed around the world. And with tuberculosis, you can get an animal form, which you know you get if you um, ingest infected meat or milk. So the farmers at Ranala could very well have been susceptible to that form of the, the disease. Or the human-to-human -human form, it's a bit more like COVID. You know, it's um, in, you 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 cough up, you cough the droplets out of your lungs, and somebody else breathes them in, and then they get infected. Um, yeah. So it's more of a disease of sort of population density and close proximity, but. Interestingly, the animal form hasn't really been found in any of the British or Irish populations. It's always the human form. So even these kind of dispersed settlements um, were still capable of carrying enough of the pathogen to cause the infection. You know, oh. so, so that's so yes, yeah, so we have quite a lot of cases of tuberculosis at Ranala, you know, from young children all the way through to, to older adults. So so I think that 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 was probably one of the, the biggest sort of threats to people in terms of you know an infectious disease yeah wow that's so you know that's so cool because that's not necessarily something that i would immediately think as being something that you could see in the bones something like tuberculosis or you know other diseases but i guess it, it you know it can leave its mark and that's something that then we can go in and we can see and then now it's another piece of this whole story you yeah, know absolutely i mean um tuberculosis is one 
one disease that we, we are, we, we can identify the lesions quite readily because it's quite a, a pattern of sort of distribution, those lots of abscesses in the spine and then around different parts of the skeleton. But Lara was able to identify that um, one woman at Ranola was actually lactose intolerant. And this kind of blew my mind because, you know, you're living in a, an economy that's full of, you know, dairying and probably, you know, drinking milk and eating butter and, you know, would have been sort of the daily staples of life. And yet she would have got very sick if she had eaten those and, and not really understood why. So that was oh. what DNA could show that. And, and they also were able to identify that a number of people were carriers for hemochromatosis, which it's called the Celtic disease. And it's basically when your, your body kind of overloads with iron and then it can cause, you know, a lot of damage to your liver and other organs and you get quite a ruddy complexion. But, but today, you know, people who have it have to get lots of blood transfusions, but they wouldn't obviously have known about that in the past and they just would have died eventually. Oh my gosh, that and that, that just would have been horrifying just to be dying of something and nobody knows why. Know, you know, know. If they, someone probably said, okay, well, you sinned one too many times, obviously, yeah. God's taking his revenge yeah. on you. But wow, especially the fact that someone would have been lactose intolerant in, like you said, a very dairy-driven society just blows my mind. I know, I know. I just think it's very bad luck, isn't it, really, to have? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, would, that would kind of suck. Yeah. <laughs> Everything you eat just makes you sick and you don't know why. <laughs> so, um, well, uh, sort of another interesting burial that I just, just wanted to talk about, because it sort of brings in the isotopes a little bit. Um, there was this old lady and she was sort of 10th 11th century 10th 12th century I should say um she was buried in a in a pit you know she was lying on her back but her knees were raised up so that looked a bit odd so we thought it was worth you know getting her isotopes and her dna studied um she was buried with a copper alloy alloy terminal and some worked bone and then the the quartz so whenever the dna results came back um lara was able to say that she looked like she had sort of Nordic ancestry or was certainly, um, you know, Central European because most of the other people at Ranala, their ancestry was, you know, more local, more Irish with yeah. a few kind of um, Scottish, Welsh, but she was a real outlier and looked like she was exotic. Um, but then whenever they, we looked at the isotopes, so Julia's dental incremental analysis picked up on the fact that her um, carbon was really high so she thought this this was something a bit strange and maybe that this woman had more fish in her diet when she was a child. Um, and then whenever Janet looked at the, the strontium and the oxygen, they found, um, or she found that it was very similar to levels in Viking burials in York, so in Coppergate, York, and um, also in Yorkshire. So she was also suggesting that this woman looked like um, she was Scandinavian. And then um, Janet had also looked at the sort of the lead content lead isotope content of some of the individuals and this woman's lead was off the scale so everybody else had very low lead levels so it looked like she had grown up in quite a polluted environment so it really it looks like this this woman probably was a viking or she certainly lived in you know scandinavia when she was a youngster um, and that she maybe lived in some sort of an urban environment and maybe practiced metalworking before she then ended up buried as an old woman on ranala and I just thought that was another really rich story, you know, from somebody from childhood all the way through to, to older age. That is, that's such an 
international story too. You know, if you think about, you know, she'd been in, it was probably, had been to a lot of different places before finally ending up at Radala where she was eventually, you know, she eventually died and was buried and just, it's so cool to imagine what her, what her story might be. I know. Oh. You're getting like a little snapshot, you know, there's so many blanks that you would just love to be able to fill in. Yeah. Oh, but that's so, that's so neat. Um, you know, it kind of makes you wonder how she ended up there. What brought her there? Like maybe she married someone who was from there or decided this looks like a great place to live and plop down roots, you know, just, it's, it's so cool. I know it's, it, it is. And just the whole, you know, the fact that she was buried with a piece of copper and then yeah. she had you know, was she a metal worker, you know, which maybe she was quite peripatetic, don't know, you know, but it's quite intriguing. It is, especially, you know, metalworking, um, isn't necessarily a trade that a lot of people would kind of attribute to to women. They might kind of think the men would be doing that. And so it's interesting to think if she was a, you know, some kind of metal worker, mm-hmm. um, you know, and maybe brought that trade with her and did some metal working in the related settlement. I know it is. It's very interesting. And again, it's, I suppose it's just the hazards of us assigning our gender perceptions. Isn't yeah. It? You know, <laughs> we don't. You know, we don't know. And the thing is, we wouldn't know anything, any, we wouldn't be any the wiser about her if we hadn't had those sort of extra techniques um, yeah. you know, employed. Yeah, because that, that was a lot that went into just kind of discovering her story. And I know I, we talked about some of those in our classes in archaeology. And um, so I have a younger sister who's, who's very interested in all this stuff. So I was like telling her about, you know, some of the stuff that I'm reading or learning about. And the, like the strontium and the oxygen analysis um, were some things that she had found really cool. And a lot of people seem to really think is neat. Cause I think it's just, it's such a, it's such an interesting way to be able to tell where someone grew up, where they've lived and just kind of find out more about the story of their life. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, it has definitely changed in um, more recent times, you know, with all these big DNA studies, but, you know, I think we really underestimated people previously you know there was an assumption you know the idea the movement of ideas rather than actual movement of people and I think sometimes we underestimate you know the the capabilities of people in the past you know oh definitely you know that's one thing that had struck me when I first started um started archaeology is that people were so much more mobile than I gave them credit for and it's something that just continually surprises me is just how far people will travel or could travel and did travel in a time long before you know motorized vehicles or highways or airplanes or any of the nice modern conveniences of travel mm-hmm. i know it is it's it's yeah they were very versatile you know and, and had to adapt to so many sort of environmental challenges and you know, I think we, we can learn a lot from people in the past and how they responded to sort of different challenges. I mean, we're, we're living in a world where our climate is changing, you know, and we can sort of look at what, how people coped in the past and, you know. Yeah. So I suppose it was just in terms of kind of everyday life, you know, there was evidence um, that life would have been hard as we would anticipate. You know, there, there were farmers. Yeah. And, you know, there's lots of evidence of stress and strain on their joints. Um, 
because actually I think if they survived childhood a lot of the adults were middle-aged and older so you know they, that was the risky period and then they, if they made it to adulthood they, they tend to live a reasonable age um, but there were a couple of people who would have had you know long-standing hip injuries that would have been pretty you know pretty debilitating so would have left them physically impaired um, now one of them was an, an old lady an old woman and it looks like she her bones were very light so she may have had osteoporosis which you know again is something that you do find in older females yeah um the, the other was an older man and and it looked like he'd suffered from quite a heavy fall but um i have a phd student jess white and she's actually trying to to look at um biomechanics of this individual and then a couple of um physically impaired people from Ballyhanna and trying to sort of reconstruct, you know, how they would have moved about um, on, you know, the impact of the injury on them. And she's also um, bringing in the sort of the bioarchaeology of care. So this is a technique developed by Lorna Tilly. And it, it's something Katrina McKenzie and I have done for Bally, some of the Ballyhanna individuals as well. And it's trying to sort of, you know, look at, again, the, the impact of um, the injury on a person or the disease on a person and then the level of sort of nursing and you know intensive care they may have required you know in the immediate aftermath of an injury and then you know how this may have changed as time went on and just the impact that, that such injuries or, or serious diseases would have had on people's lives and you know just even things like being able to go to the toilet being able to wash yourself being able to drink water or food you know like how how what was their level of dependency you know, on their family and on other members of the community. So it's just another way that we can really remember that these are people. Yeah, and that's such an, such an interesting facet of not only the individual's lives, but also the lives of the, like the society or the community in general, because, you know, if you have someone who either through injury or, or, or something else was so, you know, physically, um, you know, disabled where they had to rely on other people just for, like you said, some of those very basic tasks. Um, and if they got that sort of care, it kind of speaks to the level of, you know, involvement of their family or their community that they were willing to do that, put in that effort. Um, mm -hmm. Especially for someone, when you think about kind of the society that they were in, where, like you said, it's a, it's a hard, hard life, a lot of work, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of work being put into, you know, having to farm or take care of animals. And if you have someone who has difficulty moving around, they're not going to be able to contribute quite as much as someone who can move around a lot more. And so it, it just kind of speaks to, the, you know, their, their level of community that, you know, they'd be willing to take care of someone who is less able, you know, cause yeah. it, it just, it makes, like you said, it makes them that much more human. Yeah. yeah no, I, I, I agree. Um, and I mean, okay, maybe these people, you know, who with these serious injuries or whatever, like maybe their role in society would have changed. You know, they wouldn't have obviously like the man couldn't have gone out and got his own, you know, wheat or oats or whatever, or couldn't have, you know, looked after his animals. But maybe he then took on a different role within the yeah. community that was more sort of sedentary. Um, but yeah, and like we know sort of from anthropology that that tends to be something that does happen with people who are, are you know, physically disabled. Um, but I suppose, you know, we know as well from this sort of the Irish annals that sometimes people who who, um, ha who were blind or who, who were lame or whatever, they did get called nicknames, you know, so 
kind of hard for us to know like were they sort of treated carefully all the time or was there a bit of sort of impatience with them or you know were they seen as a burden but I suppose at the end of the day you know like the, the Ranala person and the Ballyhanna people as well they were buried still in the same communal cemetery so I think it sort of does suggest you know that they were accepted members of the community and they, you know they were looked after to be able to kind of recover at least to some extent from from these different conditions. Yeah and they were still considered to be part of the community you know it kind of makes me wonder if maybe um, the next names they were given was, you know, although sometimes they sound kind of cruel to our ears, but maybe it was just a way of distinguishing uh, between three different Johns. You have John the Big, you have John the Lame, and then you have John the Blind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you could be right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just think of like when my family gets together, uh, I we have three generations of John Robert Malloy's. So, that's always interesting you shout out John and like three people answer <laughs> or when my mom's family gets together and she and all of her sisters are named Mary something uh -huh. and so you shout Mary and five different women and a couple of cousins answer <laughs> yeah, yeah that's funny <laughs> yeah so it's just a, it, it's neat just to kind of think about because like you know like we it, like I, I keep saying but it's just it's it's so important to this kind of study is that this is the kind of stuff that just makes these remains and these people more human and helps us to connect with them a little bit more on a personal level level and see them as more than just bones in a box really yeah yeah well I suppose I'm going to spoil things slightly now and end kind of with the with the bad side of life if you like <laughs> go ahead that's it. violence okay so um we had six cases where um males were decapitated so in oh five cases, I know it was pretty, pretty grim, you know, like it wasn't just like a nice clean blow. They'd all been kind of hacked at, you know, um, um, from, from behind. And it looks like, you know, they would have been sort of kneeling and the blow would have been struck, like I said, from behind. So it looked like a sort of a, an executionary type Yikes. killing. <laughs> but the shocking thing was that one of the, the males was actually a little boy. So he was only, um, I think he was, he was only about six or seven. Oh my when he, gosh. When he died, so when he was murdered. So so that was that was pretty shocking to the whole team. You know, we were kind of like, my God, you know, what what happened? Why would somebody of this age be, be killed in this way? Um, because there have been studies, you know, of kind of trauma in, in Ireland and in, in medieval Ireland. I think Neve Carty did an overview. And she was identifying, you know, that the youngest age you tend to find injuries like this would have been, you know, in teenagers, so maybe like 13, 14 year olds. But like I was saying earlier, these guys would have been considered maybe adults. So they could have been, you know, young warriors. Um, but a little six to seven year old boy would have been too young for that. Yeah. So, so my kind of, my explanation is that perhaps he was the son of somebody important. And he might have been, you know, like a political killing. Because, um, that you would know, make it's sense. very hard to, it's, you know, because it's very difficult to kind of think up of other, think of other sort of logical explanations if you like yeah you know because it kind of just um because you know as horrible as the other ones are i mean just to kind of be executed in that fashion uh you can almost kind of logic it by you know they were enemy warriors they were criminals or what have you there's there's quite a few different reasons for why that might have happened however um you know acceptable it would have been in in 
today. But to think about, you know, someone that young, that just, that just beggars belief. I know, I know. Wow. Um, and there were, there were other kind of, you know, amongst the adults, you know, there was one of them, it looked like they deliberately sort of mutilated the, the lower, the face. You know, there were sort of sort cuts and sort of crisscrossy manners around the chin. And um, a couple of them, it looked like they maybe were trying to not scalp them, but may, maybe cut off a ponytail because there's like one clean sort of shaved cut, you know, at the back of the skull. So um, I don't know whether this was some way of sort of dishonoring them, you know, that they cut off their, their hair or whatever. Yeah, um, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, and then, and like all of, well, most of them, they, they had put the heads back, you know, into anatomical position. So, you know, this is why during excavation, they wouldn't have been noticed. It was only just when we did the, the osteological analysis that you could see the cuts. So that was quite interesting. But um, there were two of the burials now. One of them, we could sort of see from the photographs that something was amiss. You know, the head was down, the skull was on the chest, and, and the lower legs sort of were all in disarray in one of the lower arms. And this person, I don't know, I not folk haven't quite figured it all out, but it looked like they were basically partly dismembered. Oh, and there was my. Of burning on some of the bones. So, um, and then it was kind of like it was covered with some sort of a yellowy substance. So there was a lot of ritual kind of, I don't know whether it was some sort of weird purification things going on. Maybe this was particularly person that they were, they wanted to really desecrate the remains or they were, you know, fearful of or something. Um, but yeah, his body was, was really hacked up. And then another one had strange sort of like knife cuts. I think it was on the rib cage. And I wondered, had they actually, you know, cut open the rib cage maybe to take out the heart or some of the the other internal organs um now me, we know that sometimes important people they had organs buried in different places you know as a kind of a positive thing um but because this person was was decapitated it's kind of it's less convincing it sort of it could be again a sort of a, a mutilation type thing so, so this is what i mean about saying I was going to end on a kind of the bad note, you know, the, the, <laughs> of grim, grim practices and violence in the, these six cases. Yeah, I mean, it, it is certainly very grim, but it is also um, interesting because, like, again, it, it does add another, um, another layer of the story of these people, however uh, violent, um, because, you know, again, it just makes you wonder, especially like the the fellow who seemed to be at least partially dismembered and partially burned it makes you wonder like you know that's a lot of effort to go to yeah. to you know to render the body into that state and it just makes you wonder like you know why why did they do that were they um was he just a really bad dude that nobody liked and they really wanted to make sure that he was dead or were they afraid he was going to come back <laughs> and take yeah. revenge i know that that's that's it because you know it's not even as if you could kind of imagine that the body had been damaged on back you know in a, in a fight or whatever and was lying all broken up like that because it's still approximately in anatomical order and it's, it's quite carefully laid out you know so I, I think it was probably done very close to the the cemetery the, mm -hmm. the sort of the, the damage to, to the body so yeah I have a lot of mulling over still to do with, with that particular individual yeah, now here's a uh, kind of a, a grim question about that that guy. Um, was the dismemberment the cause of death, or was he killed by or died by some other means? Um, well, I think he, he was definitely decapitated, 
so we can say that no. that, <laughs> that would have definitely killed him. Um, I I should hope so. Yeah, no, no. So that but but the other the other bits like that's it. It's very hard to work out the sequence. Yeah. Um, but um, I don't know. Burning and everything, and it looked like the burning was quite focused, you know, on sort of the lower legs and on the wrists, and you know, it looked again as if it was quite methodical. Yeah. So it's it's um, yeah, like I say, I really I, I need to kind of do more more work and do a lot more sort of scrutinising of that burial to see if we can sort of try try to get a little bit more about the sequence sequence of events or what might have happened. But I don't know if there's any other parallels in in Ireland. I haven't come across any as yet yeah no that's a very specific way to treat a body and a very unusual way to do it as well um i mean just the, kind of the first thing that it makes me think of is like stories of um it, these may be just kind of folklore not but like you know stories of uh putting a, a stake into a, a corpse's heart to make sure that they don't come back as a vampire like some of those kinds of stories that just is what immediately comes to my mind but that might be the creative writer in me no no i mean you're right because um i think it was chris reed's burials in, in kiltation um where they he found i think it was two early medieval skeletons and they both had massive stones rammed into their mouths um and again you know like we do get these kind of preventative things happening to, to burial. So in this case, it could be, I mean, there's other parallels. There's a, a woman in the, um, who died in the Venetian plague and she also has a big stone rammed into her mouth and thought um, sometimes these burials with these kind of, you know, devices in their mouths, it's, to, it's again to prevent the person coming back and, and biting someone else or infecting someone else, you know, and, and quite often they're the scapegoats for the start of a plague or, you know, a disease. So, yeah. um, yeah, and the thing about the Kiltitian burials as well is that they're buried in consecrated ground, so we can't say that they're really, you know, they're definitely deviant. Yeah. Um, and, and the guy from Ranala was also presumably in consecrated ground, you know, he was in the same burial sort of alignment and, and place as everybody else. So they're, they're being marked out as different, but they're not kind of fully deviant and excluded in terms of, you know, geographical space, which yeah. I find very interesting. Yeah, no, that is, that is really, 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 really cool. Um, although a bit, you know, it's, it's kind of a, um, you know, it's still, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me, although it's also a little bit, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, just to, just to kind of imagine it. But, it, you know, again, like I, like I keep saying, it's just, it's all part of the, the story of this community and these people. Um, you know, it's, it wasn't always good. People didn't always die nicely. Um, but I think that if we were to ignore the darker aspects, um, it would do, do their story a disservice. We would be ignoring a major part of them. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it, it, that's the thing again, but, you know, archeology, span we can be very objective and, you know, our information is evidence-based. Whereas again, you know, like I, I am somebody who does use his, history books, you know, and, and um, contemporary accounts, but we just have to be more aware of bias within yeah. those accounts, you know, depending on who wrote them and the perspective of that person. Whereas oh. I think it can be more black or white in archaeology, although obviously with, there's, a, there's a scope for interpretation, but we have to sort of back it up with our, our evidence. Yeah. 
yeah, no, definitely. Oh gosh. <laughs> no. Well, yeah, that's a wonderful note to end on. Uh, no, but it is, it is absolutely fascinating. Um, and it's, it's just interesting to hear about all these different things that you can tell by looking at the bones and just taking a closer look at how people were buried and where they were and what happened to them or to their bodies after they died. Um, what they were buried with, and you know, it's just it's it's so interesting, and you know, again, it's it's not really something that we get to go into too much detail, especially not in like undergrad classes where we uh, it, it tends to be a little bit more general. Um, so it's you know, it's great to hear from someone who is in the field and working much more closely with these. So. You know, thank you so much for telling us all about this. This has just been absolutely fantastic. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. And, you know, it, it's like I say, I mean, we're, we, we all want to sort of share our stories. And, and I just think, you know, especially when we're dealing with human remains, it's all the more important that we, we do share our stories with as many people as possible. Because, like I say, we're so privileged to be able to look at these skeletons, you know. Yeah. So I kind of feel duty bound in a way to <laughs> make sure I tell everybody about these people yeah no well it's great to hear about them because you know it's not like they're around to tell us their stories and it they don't have anybody else to tell their stories because they were forgotten for so long mm -hmm. um you know yeah, but I mean, like if, if people are interested in you know studying osteoarchaeology um i mean barrow donovan has a, an msc osteoarchaeology in, in university college cork and I would take on students to, to you know, have an osteoarchaeological emphasis with our Masters of Research program. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can't, there are places on the island and then there's lots of courses um, in Britain. You know, there's a lot of people doing sort of osteoarchaeology or forensic anthropology. Uh, yeah, well, I know it's a, you know, it's an interesting field. Um, and I, I think I've, I've spoken to at least a couple of undergrads who have expressed interest in it. So I'm sure they'll, they'll enjoy hearing this and you know, this will at least kind of help them figure out where to study later on. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. is this, this is such, this is an important field for archaeology because it's just, you know, it's about such an important aspect of the remains and the things that we find is those, you know, the people that came before us. Yeah, well, that, that's what I think. And I, like I say, I just feel really privileged to be to have sort of ended up in this this field of archaeology you know i find it very rewarding work uh well it's been um it's been an absolute honor to have you here to talk to us and it's it's such a pity that we couldn't have you come down to visit us in Galway. but like okay. i said hopefully in a post-covid world we can bring you down um yeah. Yeah, no, you know, I haven't been there for a while, so it'll be lovely. <laughs> oh, we'll definitely, we'll definitely have to invite you again in the future um, to come well, down. Thank and, you for having me. Yeah, Bridget. no, thank you so thank much you for me. for chatting with me and doing this kind of kind of different uh, different way of lecturing. Yeah, um, no, it's more fun actually because it's more interactive and it's not just me boring people. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And that's kind of that's kind of the idea. I think people will enjoy it a little bit more because um, yeah. it's a little bit more personal. Um, and 
I don't know, I'm a nerd, so I enjoy listening to lectures on end, but I know not everybody does, so they might enjoy this more than just a, another lecture on top of their class lectures. So um, yeah. thank you so much for doing this again. Okay, well, thank you very much, and I hope it all works. You have been listening to Have Travel, Will Travel, a production of the National University of Ireland Galway Archaeology Society. If you get a moment, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and your favourite podcast supplier. Thank you for listening.